Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show, more than 570 and counting the entire archive, all of it is available for free. This is a listener-supported program. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this program, tip your server. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Okay? Okay. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, what a struggle, you know? It's incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. What's going on, everybody? Right. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy, and I am in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I have Eva Hagberg-Fisher on the program today. She has a new book out called How to Be Loved, a memoir of life-saving friendship. It is available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. I had a great time with her, and I think you're going to really enjoy the conversation. That's coming up in just a moment. I do want to read some mail before we get there. I got a lot of mail from you guys about last week's episode, my conversation with Roger McNamee in episode 571. For those of you who uh, are unfamiliar with that episode or with Roger McNamee, he is a longtime Silicon Valley investor who was one of the earliest investors in Facebook and served as a mentor to Mark Zuckerberg back when Facebook was just getting off the ground. And essentially what happened, and you know, I'm summarizing here, but Roger McNamee, right around Election Day 2016, had uh, an epiphany about Facebook and how it was being exploited by bad actors and uh, you know, used for nefarious purposes. And so you know, to sound the alarm, he wrote to Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg saying, hey, listen, this is going sideways. You guys got to be aware. Bad stuff is happening. And essentially, they ignored him. So he, you know, he wrote this book. It's called Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. And a lot of you who listened wrote to me. I'll read you one letter. This comes from a listener named Joseph who says, Brad, I just listened to you and Roger McNamee, which honestly, I think you were as quiet as you have ever been on one of your episodes. Mr. McNamee is a good storyteller and has no short supply of things to say. But still, I pretty much could see your jaw lying on the table right by the mic. You were so quiet. 
I don't blame you. All the stuff he was talking about makes so much sense, and it's shocking and revelatory and just, holy shit, I wouldn't have known what to say either. Signed, Joseph. So, thank you, Joseph. I appreciate you listening and taking the time to write. Uh, You know, as far as Roger's episode goes, you know, he's a whistleblower, which distinguishes him from most of my guests. Most of my guests who come on have written a poetry collection or a novel or a memoir, and uh, certainly they have interesting things to say, but perhaps not things loaded with such urgency and applicability to, like, all of us. Because even if you're not somebody who is on Facebook or uh, participates in social media, the consequences of these platforms affect all of us. And we, you know, we're living in perilous times. You know, it's worth noting that as I record this, it's, I'm recording this on Saturday, March 23rd, 2019. So Robert Mueller submitted his report to the justice department yesterday. And now we are kind of in this you know, this limbo as we wait to learn what it says. By the time this episode airs, we will hopefully know, or else we'll be out in the streets marching. But, you know, we live in perilous and interesting times, and the Facebook element of the story is no small thing. You know, the reach of this platform and others like it is enormous, not just in the United States, but all over the world. And I think that, you know, right now and for the past however many years, these platforms have been running more or less unfettered. And there are uh, ample opportunities for people with ill intent to exploit them. And that's what's happened. So if you haven't listened to that episode, and if what I'm saying doesn't make much sense to you, I recommend it. It's worth being wise to especially as we head towards 2020 and with so many of the problems that plagued Facebook, you know, three years ago, still a problem though, you know, not quite as, uh, as much of a secret problem as it once was, which is a good thing. So good to be aware of. Thanks to everybody who listened and and wrote to me. If you ever want to write to me, and let me know what you're thinking. The email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Eva Hagberg Fisher. 
Her book, How to Be Loved, A Memoir of Life-Saving Friendship, is out there now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Uh, what can I say? Just a delightful conversation, a very smart person, and uh, a really moving story that she has to tell. So here she is, folks. This is Eva Hagberg-Fisher, and her book, One More Time, is called How to Be Loved. So the origin story of the book itself is that I was living in a tent in Arizona, and I left one, my... As one does. As one does. I left my entire life behind. I left my husband behind. I was like... Well, by that point, he was he was there with me, but I was in the tent by myself. And um, I'd wanted to write a book for my whole life. You know, and when I was in New York, the first time I was in my early 20s, and I was like, I'm going to write an amazing memoir. I'm 23. Like, here's what's up with life, you know? <laughs> but I always had this drive to write. Um, and I was sort of waiting for... I guess, like, waiting for something to happen, waiting for some sort of plot point. Um, But I was in this tent, and an agent approached me and asked if I had anything that I was working on. Wait, you were in a tent in Arizona? Yeah, an agent approached me over email. Oh, okay. It'd be amazing if she just walked up to my tent. (laughs) It's like, hi, I happen to be in Sedona. (laughs) I felt your vortex vibe. I was going to say, it's the energy vortices, clearly. (laughs) Oh, I mean, I was very close to one. Um, So an agent emailed me. I sent her some work that I'd done, and then I sent her this idea for a book, and I was like, I want it to be about how friendship saved my life. And I had the title. I mean, I basically had... You know, so I'm I'm living in this tent, and um, why were you living in the tent? Well, I was allergic to the world. It was the only place that I could be not sick in the desert. In the desert, in so, Sedona specifically. It's beautiful. I tried other deserts; they didn't work. But Sedona worked. Sedona worked. Do you believe in the energy vortices? A hundred. Really? Oh, oh yeah. It's real. It's so real. I was there last, not this past January, but the January before, mm-hmm. for the first time in like 20 years, and I was like, I like this place. Yeah. It's beautiful. Did you go to one of the four vortexes? No, I went for like a really lovely hike with my sister and then I, we had our, we all had our kids. So we went to the Grand Canyon mm-hmm. on like the pink bus. Do you remember those things? Like, No, I didn't do outdoor activities. Oh, right. You were in the tent. A, right. You were in the tent, like <laughs> somehow making headway in your career. What kind of tent? Like, is this a tent that you pitched? Like it was you're... a tent that I bought in Moab while I was on this road trip trying to find a safe place. I finally, I was like allergic to every single hotel that I went to. So what, I what finally... are you allergic to? Um, it turns out like a lot, uh, basically like inside things and outside things. I mean, trees, dust, mold. Um, I have this disease called mast cell activation syndrome that is sort of what it sounds like where my mast cells, which are are allergic mediators. So they release like histamine and cytokines and all the other enes. Um, and they produce a basically like anaphylactic allergic response. And so mine were so acutely sensitized by spending six months. No a year and a half in a very, very moldy house uh-huh. that for about a year, I couldn't actually tolerate any external stimulus. Cause you were just overloaded. I was just overloaded. My body was just like anaphylaxis, anaphylaxis. It was like low, low level anaphylaxis. I was going to say, cause anaphylactic shock like that can kill Which you. Which I've had. Yeah. So I've had like anaphylactic shock that requires like multiple EpiPens. Do you um, have one on you right now? I don't. So oh. <laughs> I hopefully hope I we're some, fine. Hopefully I have some Benadryl. <laughs> 
I haven't had that was to an allergy shot. So, you know, I don't have anaphylactic responses to the world. But um, yeah, but I also did. I also thought at the time I didn't have this diagnosis. So I just thought that I was really sensitive to mold. And I'd sort of fallen into this like internet mold vibes community. There's got to be such a deep it's such mold a hole. Ju- oh my god! And 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 so the advice that I was getting was to get a tent and sleep outside, and that if I did like that was the only way to decontaminate myself. And so I was out of options, and I was desperate, and my body was giving me these like extraordinarily strong signals. Like what? Um, I would get really really dizzy. I would feel this like sort of rolling wave of warmth. Um, I would get this feeling of like impending doom, which an allergist told me later is a symptom of anaphylaxis, is a, is a feeling of impending doom. Oh my God, I have anaphylaxis. That's what you have. You think it's just ennui, but it's not. It's low level anaphylaxis. It's changed my life. <laughs> so, and I was doing all these like supplements and just, I mean, I was just really like trying to get better. And I'd had what was weird about this sort of illness constellation was that I'd been through such extraordinary, but like very easily identifiable things. So I'd spent two years being like, you know, oh, I have to get brain surgery because I have a mass in my brain and an elevated tumor marker. Like this is the next indicated thing or like, oh, I have to get heart surgery because when I do an EKG, this rhythm, you know, exhibits that I have Wolf Parkinson White. Like, it was so obvious. And I was like, thank God that's over. Boy, did I learn a lot from my illness. Like, do, to do. And then I got sick in this nebulous way. And so I ended up in this tent in Arizona. Um, and I just was like, I, I have nothing to do all day. Was it hot um, or was it cold? It was very hot. It was oh, like so August, summer? September. Yeah. Oh and my God. Our air conditioner was broken, but we were like so overheated that we didn't notice. And like, wait, your air conditioner in the house. So there was, I rented a house and then I slept in a tent on the patio. Okay. I was thinking, house. I was thinking of you like in the wild. No, no, I was just on a patio. Got it. Um, which was just a normal place to sleep. So I bought my tent in Moab because I was driving around trying to stay in hotels. And then internet people were like, oh, you should just get a tent. So I went to this tent store and was like, hello, I need a tent. And they were like, great. What's your experience with camping? And I was like, zero. <laughs> so I just got a tent and like a little camping pad. And, um, you know, I had no idea how to set up a tent. I had never done it. Camped in Moab for a couple days. Um, Which is beautiful. It was, I fucking hated it. It was, no, I mean, just, well, it's the wrong time of year. It's, it was, uh, yeah. It's I mean, too hot. right. I was there in like July thinking also that I might just be having, not just that I might be having a psychotic break. Right. Because this whole time people were like, this is like, does this check out Eva? Like you're so sensitive to mold that you can't go inside anywhere. Like there's mold. It's, it's the everywhere. kind of behavior that could easily be misconstrued as like you've, you've lost it, right? Totally. Like you're on the, you're on the internet, you're looking at chat rooms, you're living in a tent. It's like, what's going on? Right. And it's, it's, it's so when I wrote about this time, I had to rewrite the third section like 12 times because I kept feeling so ashamed of my behavior that I was trying to write to compensate. Like I kept being like, it was real. Everybody thought it wasn't, but it was. And when I finally sort of leaned in, I use that phrase with lowercase, to like the fact that I was actually behaving in a way that, that, did, that did not feel sane. 
you know, like, I, like there's a scene where I'm like in this hotel room and I'm still reacting to something and I go online and they say like, oh, well, you know, um, MacBook Airs are often produced in moldy factories and the computer fan actually is full of mold. And I like wipe my computer down with like rubbing alcohol and then like hide it in my closet because I'm so sure that I'm reacting to it. And I'm like totally alone. And I'm like, this is incomprehensible demoralization. Um, and being able to finally like write that scene and just be like, this is how it, this is how far it went, you know? Um, was felt really horrifying. Um, but thankfully, I have no sense of future consequences, so I just did it anyway. Okay, okay, because I'm interested in this because, um, like work, like trying to write myself in areas where it feels like difficult, depressing, mm. emotionally painful. Like, it's it was it ever painful for you to write this? The only scene that was painful to write was when Allison dies. Yeah. That was the only scene that I resisted writing that I that I kept doing a lot of convoluted procrastinate procrastinatory things not to do. Um but everything else it really just felt like a puzzle. I mean, I just kept thinking, okay, how do I use the scene that I remember? You know, should it be a scene? Should it be memory? how do I use this, this like moment to advance an argument? Like, how do I make sure that the reader comes with me and that the reader has some sort of cathartic response? Well, and I think too, maybe the, maybe the key step or a key step is that you seem to have zeroed in on the central argument of your book. Like you knew mm -hmm. the point you were trying to make. Mm -hmm. I don't know what point I'm trying to make sometimes. Oh, like, or, or like, I don't know, like, like, was it that clear to you? Like what, and what was the point again? Like, what was the argument in your head right. that you set out with that kind of gave you a framework? Yeah. The argument was that progress and a sense of a better future are not actually comforting. Like it's sort of like an anti-capitalist book in a way. And that argument came about in response to the way that I felt like the culture taught people to behave around me. So I think we are taught as a culture that when you see a sick person, you immediately orient towards the future and you're like, this will be behind you. This will be better. This will get better. Like one day this will be in the rear view mirror. Right. And that was not my experience. My experience was that at the time I believed often that this day was my best day and it was only going to get worse. And then I was going to die. And so I had to learn to ask for and receive comfort with improvement not being on the horizon. And once I learned to like live in this space, it felt like my experience of life went from one that was always sort of progress oriented, future oriented, like what I'm gonna do, how I'm going to be amazing, my potential into like, this is it, this is all I have, but can I sort of thicken my experience of life? Can I like, and I would say to my friends, like, I'm like elbowing out space for me to live in, in this day and in this time with the information that I have. Um, and I think to like really, really, really condense it, it's about like living in the moment. But as much as I had read books about like live in the moment, I, I mean, the way in which I stopped being able to clearly imagine a future um, and the way that that inability to imagine a future affected me in the day, like I was like, this seems like a thing that could be valuable. Like maybe other people that are suffering, if they know that they don't have to be 
like teleological in a way. They don't have to be oriented towards like, well, what's going to happen next? Like, are you going to get better? Or are you going to get worse? Is this curable? Is it not curable? Like, I remember when um, we thought I had a malignant brain tumor and we were kind of facing, you know, I was facing like a really, really rough treatment, but I talked to a ne- neurologist and she said, well, you know, the treatment is really, really terrible, but it's curable. And I remember my mother-in-law was like, thank God, thank God, thank, you know, thank God it's curable. And I remember thinking like, it's so interesting that that is, that that is the ultimate comfort to you. Whereas what I'm seeing is like a year and a half of profound suffering. Right. Like I'm not, I'm not at like the cure. Um, and I think that people that live with a chronic condition, like they, they really live in this world. Um, but I hadn't ever read a book where somebody articulated that, that clearly. Um, so, I mean, that's one point. What do you mean they really live in the world? You mean to a higher degree of intensity than people who are maybe more future oriented or, I mean, I think that they, well, I don't, yeah, maybe I shouldn't say they, I think I, I and my fellow sort of like chronically dealing with a body people, you know, in a way that we're consciously, you know, we're constantly conscious of our body. Like I don't have a sense of discrete breaks in my, in my physical experience. I'm not like, well, well, thank God I'm over that. Now it's going to be smooth sailing, right? I think I'm constantly in a dance with my body. I'm constantly like, oh, that's a weird symptom. I'm constantly assessing if it's a symptom that deserves medical treatment. Like I sort of live in this place where like nothing is guaranteed. And within that place is extraordinary freedom. Because of the autoimmune? Yeah. And, and just because of my experiences with my, with my brain and my heart and my ovaries and my like stage four endometriosis. And like, you know, it's like, I just never, I'm never out of the woods. You've had a ton of shit go down. So much shit. Yeah. But it's deepened you. Yeah. 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 Made made you more like what, what happened? Like how, I mean, can you sum it up? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I had confusing symptoms for a number of years and then, um, and then one day I fainted and I went to the ER. I mean, I faint. I was very confused. I fainted and I was very confused. An MRI found a cyst in my brain. A neurosurgeon tested my tumor marker. It was elevated. He was like, slam dunk. You have brain cancer. I was like, great, cool. I'm 31. Like, not what I expected. Um, like, and gli- I, like glioblastoma or something terrible? No, it, they thought it was an intracranial germinoma, okay. like a non-germinatomous germinoma, which is like a weird... Where did you get uh, treatment? I'm curious. UCSF. Oh, my buddy's a neurologist there. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What's... Uh... Andy Andy Josephson? No, I was in I was in neurosurgery, not neurology. So I think they're like slightly different. Yeah, he's a neurologist. Yeah, so. yeah. Different, different family. Um, so I had this biopsy and there were like two places in my brain that they thought might be producing this tumor marker and one they could easily biopsy and one they could not easily biopsy. So they biopsied the one that was easy, quote unquote, um, and that was negative. But then they were like, well, that means it's definitely in this other place, right? It's in the pituitary stock and we can't biopsy that. So we'll just watch. We'll like keep MRIing you and we'll watch. And so for a couple of years, I'd have these like six month spans of time until I'd get a scan that either indicated like the tumor has grown or the, or the tumor has not grown. Um, By the way, nothing is more fun than repeat MRIs. Right. It's just, (laughs) well, but that's what taught me to be anti teleological because I, I would, I would like parcel out my life into these increments. Like I got my tumor marker tested every month. And so I would get it tested and then there would be like a slight increase or a slight dip, like nothing enough to take action. And then I was like, okay, I have another month to live the life that I, that I know, um, or live the life that I want. And so 
at a certain point, I was like, this is not a sustainable way to live. I have to find another way. And that was just embracing this uncertainty. Um, Which we all live in. All of us. Even though, you know, a great many of us are blind to just how delicate everything is. Mm -hmm. And like how thin the membrane is between life and death. Oh my God, it's so thin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of like weird, weird experiences with that thin membrane, but... um, Like what? I mean, I feel fairly sure that I talk to Allison regularly. Um, that, that you talked or talk? Talk about? Cur- currently that oh, I, really? you know, that I can communicate with her. And explain um, Allison to people. Right, listening. right. So, so, so Allison is dead. Uh, just to be clear that I'm not like, I can talk to my friend on the phone. <laughs> I'm it's amazingly amazing. skilled. It's an incredible accomplishment. <laughs> Thank you. I know. Um, so Allison is one of the really main characters of the book, aside aside from, from me and some other friends. Um, and she's a woman that I met when she was 60 and I was 30. And she she was basically, I mean, she'd been given a terminal diagnosis. And um, she which, had which breast, cancer. breast cancer. Yeah, cancer. metastasized. Um, and so we, the book opens with my meeting her and just being like, what's up with this, like, with like this person like i don't i don't get her vibe she's like really emotional in public she um she talks about like missing her husband he's been dead for five years i don't get why she's still sad about it like you know just because i was so just shut down like emotionally physically everything um but i was going through grad school and so i really wanted to like be of service. Like I was like, I should be a useful young person. So I would sort of bring her food and be like, hello, old woman, I am here to assist you. Um, and just like something about her just kind of got past my various intricately constructed defenses. Um, and we became friends and we became like very equal friends. And when I got sick with the brain thing, when the, when the brain thing happened and I was preparing for brain surgery, I lived with her for a couple of weeks. And, um, and that time was extraordinary. I mean, it was an extraordinary gift and she, so wait, and where did you meet her? Um, I met her in Berkeley. Okay. Yeah. Um, through mutual friends. Um, and, uh, that time that I spent, like, I had seen her be sick and I had seen her do all these things that, like, didn't make sense to me. Like, get really nervous about getting a repeat MRI, you know, get really nervous about doing chemo. And I was like, but you've done it before. Like, I don't get why this is scary. And then I remember it's like, you know, like, Susan Sontag has a thing about, like, the kingdom of the sick and the kingdom of the of the well. And there was a day where I crossed over into Allison's kingdom. And I remember just being like, oh, fuck, this is how it is. And she was just sort of be like, hi, yeah, welcome. Like, yeah, now we're on this side and we're on this side together. And that ability, I was going to say that support, but it wasn't, it was like that resonance with somebody being able to say to somebody like, you know, my tumor marker is like hovering at a point below sort of a level of confirmation. Like apparently if it got to 20, then they would just initiate treatment. And it was at like 18.9. And I would keep being like, just get to 20, just get to 20, just get to 20. And if I said that to anybody else, they were like, what kind of fucked up insane person wants to have a tumor marker of 20. But the uncertainty for me was so painful that I was like, I prefer certain suffering over this like in between. And she said to me, she was like, okay, listen, like, first of all, you actually don't ever want to have cancer. Like, it's actually not like, I, I get that you want that you don't. And then she was like, but I couldn't do what you do. I couldn't live in this in between. Like, she was like, I know what's wrong with me. Um, and just having somebody that I could 
say these things to that I was so ashamed of. And I think that's maybe the other argument of the book is like, when we say the things that we're most ashamed of to another person who I think we should choose carefully, <laughs> um, then there can be extraordinary healing in that. And, you know, to bring it back to like the, the difficulties or, or, you know, growth opportunities of like writing a memoir. I mean, I talked to a friend of mine before it came out and I was like, God, I just realized how honest it is. Like, I just realized how vulnerable it is. And like, why, like, why did I think that this was a good idea? Like, what, like, why didn't I do the regular thing and like, write a novel or, or like, why was I so relentlessly just like, well, I guess I'll just say that thing. Um, and she was like, Oh, this is just your job in this lifetime. Like, this is just the job that you have. And like, you're good at it. So you can just keep doing it. And I was like, Oh, okay. Cause like, we do need people right, willing to like go there. Well, and I just think of all the people that went there before me and and the way in which their work has given me so much freedom. And I'm like, if I have the opportunity to do that and I can do that well and I have that talent and I don't use it because I'm afraid, that is that is not that is not the choice that I want to make. Like I don't want to look back on my life and be like, I had the opportunity to be useful in the way that so many writers have been useful to me, but I was like caught up in self-centered ego fear. Yeah. I mean, it's like, but what about bringing the reader along, not overwhelming them with sadness, keeping things, I mean, maybe entertaining isn't the right word, but you know what I'm saying? Like you mm -hmm. are being a host yeah. to a certain degree when you're writing a book, <laughs> you're bringing people into an experience. And I think you have to have maybe some intuitive understanding of, how to keep people turning pages. Um, you have to know what to skip. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It, it gets complicated, especially around, at least for me, especially around like really difficult stuff. Mm. I think I have just like a, a fundamental aversion to being the bearer of bad news or something. Mm. I don't want to be a bummer, but like, I want to oh. go there, but I want it to be like funny. <laughs> it's, right. it's all very confusing. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I've been hearing you talk on the podcast about oh, the book that you're I'm writing so and I'm sorry. like, please write it. Yeah, I want to read it. I'm trying. I mean, I totally get it. And I, and I think one, one of the things that I like is I, I met with uh, somebody yesterday who'd read it and she was like, I just want to say like, it's, it's really funny. You know, there's like a lot of funny moments in your book. And another friend of mine had texted me and she was like, I feel really bad, but I'm like actually laughing at your book. And I was like, no, that was on purpose. Like, I didn't want to write a book that was like, listen, you know, let me tell you some shit that happened at the doctor. Like, that's not the <laughs> point of the book. Um, and I have a very dark humor. Um, How could you not? Right. By the way, just so, for people listening, and I hope this is okay, but can we just catalog... Like you've been through, like, say again, <laughs> okay. brain surgery. Yep. And what, give me the medical okay, terminology. Brain, uh, yeah. I had a, a um, transphenoidal um, biopsy of my pituitary. I had a, a square inch of my brain removed. So a part of my brain lives in a freezer in San Francisco right now, which is like super fucking weird. Um, I had an ablation for Wolf Parkinson White, which is a congenital heart condition that can kill you like instantly. The term is sudden death, like the the risk is sudden death. Um, How did I've that had, get discovered? Um, I ha so I, when I fainted, I had an EKG uh. and they were like, oh, you have this. But then two days later, they found the brain thing and they were like, let's, you know, not worry about the heart thing. And then 
eight months later, I had a tilt table test because we thought I might have POTS, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, where your heart rate like increases. Oh God! And in that tilt table test, they were like, "Um, has anybody ever said you have Wolf Parkinson way?" And I was like, "Yes," but we rolled it out, and they were like, "LOL." We are ruling it in. You need to get an ablation. In the meantime, hope you don't have sudden death, you know, (laughs) like. And so I had a month where I was waiting for the surgery and I got so fucked up. I mean, I would get. Don't you love it how they make you wait a month? Yeah. They're like, this might kill you. See you in a month. I mean, you know. What? And also like, and and by the way, you're not done yet, are you? Oh, with the thing. Yeah, of course there's more. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, great. Let me let you keep going. Yeah. Okay. So I had a right ovarian cystectomy, which was, uh, I had a dermoid and then I had, um, another ovarian cystectomy, which diagnosed stage four endometriosis. And then I recently had another surgery for stage four endometriosis. Okay. So, and the ovarian, what was the the word? It was a dermoid, which is, um, oh, these, oh, you don't know. Oh, so these are teratomas, which are like the monster tumor where it's like possibly a twin that you've absorbed. I know you interviewed Leah. Yeah. Uh, Leah I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Yeah. Vanishing twin. So I really, I was like, I think that's what my little ovarian friend was. It was like a twin that I, you know, wow. absorbed. Yeah. Because, I mean, when they're really gnarly, they have, like, teeth and hair and, like, eyeballs and right. stuff like that. Yeah, I was really hoping mine had eyeballs. It did not. But Does I was this like, live in a freezer in San Francisco, too? It's also in a freezer in San Francisco. Why do they keep these things, just in case? For research. I sign away my, you know, I'm like, yeah, I use my brain tissue for oh, research. Right. Yeah. 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 So Publishers Weekly called my book gruesome, and I was very confused about why they called it gruesome <laughs> until I'm having this conversation with you, and I'm like, you're maybe. Like, you're like, the dermoid didn't even have teeth. <laughs> I know. I'm like, come on. It was just, like, snot. Um and I had a root canal also, you know, which, uh, and you, and you have struggled with addiction or in or in recovery. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been sober for, um, 11 and a half years coming up on 12 years. And, um, before then I was a person who should, who needed to get sober. Um, so, but that's like, yeah. that's its own big health yeah. crisis. Yeah. 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 Um, totally. So it's been a lot. It's been a lot. And you're in your thirties. I'm 36. Yeah. All of this before age 36. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. It's like I have a complicated, I have complicated thoughts about this stuff. Like my son mm-hmm. has health issues mm-hmm. and that's a life changer. Yeah. Um, and sometimes like, you know, in quiet moments, I'll be like, wow, you know, like this is really hard. Yeah. But it's like also really like opens me up mm-hmm. like in your that's what your book is about that's what you're talking about yeah so it's like you don't want to like minimize the difficulty uh, certainly not the difficulty of like someone else yeah. or your child but it's like in some ways to be confronted with the fragility of health and life uh you know it can feel at times like kind of a weird I don't want to say gift or blessing, but you know right. what I'm saying? Like it's given you, certainly it's, it's, it's deepened you and given you perspective that, um, hopefully God willing you go forward in the rest of a long life. Mm-hmm. Like it's quite uh, a set of experiences to have yeah. and to uh, quite an amount of hopefully wisdom to yeah. carry with you that you, you can't manufacture otherwise. No. I mean, that's, and also, like, I'm sorry that you have to walk this road. I think it's really hard. I don't have a kid, but I love people who are sick. And I think it's so... And I've seen people love me, and I've seen my parents love me, and seen how hard it is. Um, And also, you know, I wouldn't... 
I was about to say like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it back. I mean, I think if I, but, but that sort of fits into this thing that I want to argue against, which is like, now that I know what was on the other side, I wouldn't give it back. But in the middle, I was like, I don't want this shit. Right. And I, and I really, really resisted sort of being like the local Oracle. Right. And I think that there's, um, I have this line in the book where I talk about giving Allison a hug. And this is before I got really close to her and that, and I talk about the sort of like physical tourism of illness and the way in which we sanctify those who are closer to death than we believe we are. And that we believe was crucial. Right. Um, by the way, whenever somebody dies or is given a terminal diagnosis, the truth about human nature is that there is always some part of those around them who in like the very deep recesses of their mind are like, yeah, it's not me. Yeah. Not my turn yet. Yeah. Like mathematically, like statistically. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I, and I don't think that's necessarily like evil or something. I think it's sort of human totally. reflex. But yeah. It's there and it doesn't it's get talked about a lot. Totally there. It's like, oh, this is the person who has the health thing, right? Yeah, right. This is the identified patient. Um, but I remember feeling in the moment, both, you know, because I'm an alcoholic egomaniac, like, yes, I am the keeper of the wisdom secrets. Come to me <laughs> and I will bestow upon you my, you know, my mind blowing vibes. And on the other hand, I was like, I'm just a fucking person who doesn't know how to do this. Like, I don't know how to do this. And there was this moment, you know, sort of at the end of the book where I, I realized there's like another trap door where I realized that I've thought that I've been really intimate with people, but I've actually been like, doling out information to different people and still like maintaining control of the situation. And when I was in the desert, I was totally out of control. Um, but, and like, yes, it turned out, you know, it turned out great. Now I have a book like great, but I didn't know that any of this was coming when I was there. And I think that letting myself fall into this like total abyss of like, the, like I'm never going to turn this into art. I'm I'm never going to come out of this. Okay, great. What can I do today? I live in a tent. The birds are singing. There's a nice vortex. I'm going to walk to the vortex and just like look at the sky. And what what look is at a the bird. is the vortex a physical thing? Yeah. So there's four vortexes, and they're they're called vortexes, not vortices. Uh, there's a book oh. called like A Practical Guide to Vortexes, and it it clarifies that in the introduction. I'm sorry, um, I stand corrected. <laughs> no, I think I think you said vortex, um, but. Uh, yeah, and they have like different energies. So the one that I was near was Bell Rock, which is like a masculine energy sort of thing. And I would just walk around it, like. And I started as I got healthier. I started being able to walk longer distances, and I'd you know I'd spend like two hours just walking around and being like, wow, I'm like I'm like alive. I'm present. I'm in this body. Like this body feels weird. My brain feels weird, but like I'm here. And look at this tree, and look at this lizard. And I would talk to lizards and be like, hi, friend. You know, I mean, I was just totally in the moment. Um, because I wasn't like, well, you know, I can't wait until I absorb these lessons and then I like go and blow everybody's mind. You know, I was just like, this is it, Eva. Like you live in Sedona and everybody thinks that you have just had a nervous breakdown, you know. It's a great and place like, to be. Okay. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I sort of like after book pub, I was like, ooh, I kind of, I'd love like a nice like month just like in, in, a, in a nice like sanatorium, you know, yeah. <laughs> like I could. I'm like trying to manufacture some sort of, but no, it's not. 
not in my future. But I feel like Sedona is kind of a, like a cinematically perfect place to go when yeah. you're in that state. Yeah. I mean, it's I a know. cinematically perfect place anyway. Right. But if you're going to go someplace mm-hmm. and, you know, have a brain that's feeling weird and... Right. It might as well be there. Might as well be there. Yeah, totally. Um, so accepting care. Mm. And opening yourself up to people and being vulnerable and understanding like what friendship means and what it means to be like truly intimate with people and loving. Like these are all things that sort of um, can make your skin crawl to talk about, especially Mm -hmm. before Mm -hmm. (laughs) like a health crisis. You know, there are only certain moments I think where people in life where most people are able to open up and a lot of times it happens around health stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about like what you learned about like friendship and, and like where you were closed down and how you opened up? Yeah. I mean, I was so, I was so afraid of people being disappointed in me or judging me and, and because I judged everybody else. Right. I mean, it's like you, you see, I think, you know, I perceive what I do and I didn't understand that I could just be like messy and imperfect and also not transactional. Like I remember being like, well, I helped this person and now they are going to help me and then I'm going to help them. But I, but if I'm like too far on the side of like needing help, then like they will leave me. Um, and part of that is just the way that I was raised was to be like really smart and really productive. And, but I wasn't raised with a lot of like emotional sort of intimacy. Um, very Scandinavian, very Scandinavian. Yes, exactly. Eva is uh, Swedish. Yes. I'm, we talked about that before yeah, we came on Swedish and Norwegian. So I just have all the, yeah. Um, right. Like as an example, my, my, my grandfather died, I think two years ago. And the next day my grandmother was like, sitting on the couch reading the new yorker like having her martini and she was like i just don't understand the institutionalization of grief i mean everybody's husband dies and i was like <laughs> i'm like you know falling into like i'm I'm like crying and meditating and like dedicating my yoga practice to you know being like he lives in the trees now and like and my grandmother's just like yes well it's you know everybody dies i don't know why people make such a big deal about it so do you think like this is the question though do you think that maybe she's just like got her shit together or do you think that she's just like was closed down maybe a little of both i i yeah i mean honestly watching her watch him die was a beautiful moment because she was so accepting and loving of what he was doing And I could feel that she was truly detaching with love and just like the intense, like acceptance of the fact that he, you know, because I was there like the moment that he died and, um, and, and I could just see, she was like, this is just what Bill is doing right now. And I remember thinking like, God, I want to love somebody like that. Yeah. Where you love them even as they leave you forever. Right. Right. Giving myself goosebumps, blowing my own mind. (laughs) You know, like that was so profound. And so I think that she has that capacity, but I think she just doesn't want to talk about it. I think she just finds it sort of distasteful to discuss. But recently she's been like, you know, I think I might be a little buttoned up. Do you think I'm repressed (laughs) and buttoned up? And I'm like, well, grandma, you know, 
grandma, think you're come, great. To, come to Sedona. <laughs> oh my God. She would have an amazing time. <laughs> she would just be like, I've got a big tent. I mean, she's actually a neurologist. So she's like, you know, all these things are your brain t- trying to, you know, I'm like, well, you know, I can, I can feel, you know, the movement of the dead. And she's like, well, that is your XYZ cortex that is firing and like, abc way to oh, you know see, that's yeah. like, that's why she's kind of dispassionate she's got like yeah. think, like she's got like a map exactly she's like oh i noticed that your prefrontal cortex is firing you know <laughs> how fascinating <laughs> um yeah so i mean that was sort of my vibe and then i got sick and and it was it was literally life or death um whether i asked for help because i had a complication after the surgery where my pituitary got irritated and it didn't know how to regulate water anymore. And I don't know if you are a physician, but you may know that water is crucial to our body's functioning. <laughs> I've heard this. <laughs> yes. Um, and so my, my body was just like, water, do we, hmm, do we need it or we don't need it? Unclear. Uh, let's experiment. You know, and so sometimes I would get, um, I mean, I had this hyponatremia, which was this drop in sodium because my body held on to like 11 pounds of water. Um, and so I got like super bloated after the surgery, but I was like, I guess I just ate too many donuts and then like was rushed to the hospital and like almost died. Um, but then after that, I just like, couldn't, I mean, I was just like drinking water constantly and just like peeing constantly and I just couldn't, you know, so I had to get all my hydration intravenously for it to like, even, you know, get into my body. And I would be out with friends and I would feel, you know, the symptom was that my heart rate would rise dramatically and it wouldn't come down when I got too dehydrated. Um, And, you know, I'd be like pounding. I would have like three bottles of water, you know, and I would just be dehydrated. Um, That that happens with diabetes too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, Which my mom who wants me to stop eating sugar keeps like hoping I'll be diagnosed with. I'm like, I don't Thanks, think Mom. that's how it works. She's like, you're so beautiful when you're thin. Do you think you have diabetes and need to stop eating cake? I'm like, this is, this is a, I don't feel good when this happens. I statements, um, you know, but I'd be like lying on the floor, you know, measuring my heart rate. And I'd be like, I need to go to the emergency room or, or something bad might happen. And so I really had to get over myself, right? Because my pride was like, Eva, but your friends took you to the emergency room last week. Don't make them take... But I couldn't... This was before Lyft and Uber were invented also. And I didn't have a driver's license and I didn't have a car because I didn't have a license. And I really relied on my friends. And so that experience of like... It was so black and white. It was like, if I ask for help, I live. And if I don't ask for help, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's probably going to be bad. That was just a great storm that blew through my consciousness. And I was like, okay, great. I, and I, I say this in the book at one point, I'm like, I didn't have time anymore to learn how to be loved. I just had to, I just had to accept it. Um, and then I noticed that my friends were like, you know, getting cheeseburgers at like smokehouse next door and bringing it to the ER. And we were like having kind of a, a fun time and just like hanging out and keeping it light. And what it was like, it sort of became a normal thing. Like, Oh, Eva just goes to the hospital. Like Eva just gets <laughs> surgery. Like, what are we, who's going to come to this surgery? Like, here's my team, like whatever. Um, and, and that was really, really useful for me in terms of, of developing intimacy. And the trick now is that now that I'm not sick, um, which is like such an amazing thing to say, um, I can feel myself wanting to revert back into like shame and like, Oh, I don't, I don't deserve care again because I just 
I got all that care, you know, like you used up your quota or whatever. Totally, totally. And that's one of the things about being sober and being sober with other people and spending a lot of time with other sober people is that like, and this was another point in my book is like, when it's a group, the help is sort of inexhaustible. And so when I was sick, I really, really, really relied on a, on a much larger group of people instead of like, okay, I have my two friends and like they do everything. So I would just put on Facebook like, hey, I need a ride to the doctor at UCSF at 10 a.m. on a Wednesday. Anybody want to take me? And I would get rides from people that I like barely knew, but they were on social media and they wanted to be useful that day the same way I'd wanted to be useful to Allison. And so, you know, I got like all of my needs met in in totally different ways. And when the needs were really like intimate and emotional, I knew who to go to. And when the needs were really practical, I didn't need to like bring that emotional person with me. I could just have a random friend. Did you know before your illness that you had lots of close friends? Like, did you, were you a person like socially, were you like, I really am connected to some people or when the illness came on, was it like, Oh wow. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. So I, um, I had a lot of friends and, um, but I didn't realize how much they loved me. I mean, I think that like, I just, I just was always like, Oh, well we're, we're friends because, you know, we went to college together. We're friends because we were in the same social, like there was always some sort of reason that we were friends. Um, but I'd also, before I got sick, I mean, well, before I, so I got sick like five years into being sober. And so before I got sober, I pretty much like, I was in the doghouse with all of my friends. Um, a friend of mine was just like, Oh, why didn't you go to that friend's wedding? And I was like, Oh, I, that was during the years of like, Eva is not invited to things, you know? (laughs) So I went to college and I had all these amazing college friends. And then I just like descended into addiction and alcoholism. And they were like, okay, we're like, Eva's a fucking liability, which I was, what would happen? Like you just like loud. Oh God. I was no, Oh no, I wish God. I mean, I hear people be like, oh, I'm so embarrassed about my behavior. I got drunk and I did karaoke. I'm like, cool. So I got drunk and I texted a lot of people, a lot of shit that I didn't need to text them. I hit on people's boyfriends. I told other people that their boyfriends were cheating on them. Um, I would steal money. I don't mean to laugh. I don't mean to laugh. No, this is hysterical. I would like force people to buy me drinks. There's this one guy and I made an amends to him and it was the most embarrassing. He's never responded, but I just, I tracked him down and I sent him an email and I was like, Many years ago, we were at a party together and we went to the bar and I, I like thought I was super hot shit and like demanded that you buy me a, a drink. And he was like, not, like, I thought in my mind I was being like in a movie and I was like super cool and like sexy and being like, buy me a drink. And he was like, I actually don't want to, like, I don't n- know you. We, 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 we were like different grades in college. Like, I, like I sort of know he, but like, we don't have a relationship. And I was like, buy me, a, you know, like, <laughs> just not fucking cool um by the way i love amends ugh. like i know they're hard yeah but like as a practice like mm-hmm. like irrespective of or like doesn't even have to have any like uh, correlation with uh substance abuse right but just like in life yeah I, yeah I, I, I need to there are so many things i wish i could reach out to people for i guess i could but yeah why, the, why do you think you can't because it would be little stuff that people have probably forgotten about that I'm obsessing oh. over. Like so would you feel relief? Would you feel better? Yeah. But isn't that not the point? Isn't it, it like, is the point. isn't it? Because it's like, if you, but you can't expect, as I understand it, you can't expect the person to absolve you. You can't correct. Send, no. You can't send the no. amends or try to make the amends with the expectation that the person is going to be like, 
all is forgiven. Right. Of course. No. And the person might be like, they might ignore you as they did me. They might be like, this is weird. Somebody that I made amends to was like, is this part of like a thing? And I was like, well, you know, I've been sober for some time and I'm just trying to clean up my life. And she was like, okay, well, I know you've been sober for eight years. So like, great that it took you eight years to get around to me. You know, and I was like, <laughs> I, you know, there, there are layers to my experience. Um, but what making the amends does for me is like, I, I, I like, you know, with, with the situation with this, with this mortifying email, like I no longer have to cringe when I see this person's name. This person is like a respected, well-known writer, you know, but I, I don't have to be like, Oh, that thing. Right. Right. And the fewer things I have, the more important they seem, which is why actually now the amends that I'm making are really like minor quote unquote, like, you know, that amends I made like two years ago. Whereas I made amends to like my parents, you know, like a year into being sober, because those were really big. But it's like these little things just stick with me. And like, I want freedom. Like, I want relief. You know, I want to stay sober. And if I pile up enough of these sort of fears and resentments and self-resentments, then it just like, it, it kind of like, it just like muddies the waters a little bit, you know? Yeah, so yeah. I totally encourage, I mean, many people that I've talked to have been like, first of all, you don't owe me an amend. Second of all, I don't remember. Third of all, like great that you're going, you know, but, but I feel relief. But I think, you know? I think most people are touched when yeah. somebody like sincerely reaches out to them and yeah. say, Hey, I'm so sorry. Exactly. And people, like, like you'd have to be pretty hard hearted or the offense would have to be pretty grievous, <laughs> you know, which does happen sometimes. I mean, you know, sometimes oh, yeah. you can really uh, mess things up with a person and like the, the sorry doesn't cut it, but it helps a little bit. I would guess. Right. I mean, there's an, there's an ex who's Charles in the book who like, I try. I like emailed and was like, "Hi, I'd like to make amends." And he was like, mm, "No thanks." No thanks. You know, but I got to try. You got and to then try. I get to make living amends, which is like I don't do the same things that I did to him right. in my life now. Which is like, as a you know, a lapsed Catholic, this is how I try to understand guilt. Where it's like you don't have to sit there and like stew in guilt. Mm -hmm. Just don't repeat the behavior. Exactly. Carry on with your life. Exactly. And as long as you're not repeating the behavior, then mm -hmm. I mean, because we all fuck up. All of us. By the way, uh, I would like to make amends to all of my listeners right now for all the times. <laughs> uh, so what about like death? I want to mm. talk some more about it. Yeah. I've talked a little bit about it on the show recently. I've been reading about it mm. and I don't know why. I think maybe it's because I'm just at a stage of life where my parents are getting older I'm getting older. I mean, I'm in my 40s. Maybe that's like what you do. You read about death at a certain age. Yeah. But I'm also uh, maybe more than most, like very interested in being tuned in to the reality of it. Yeah. I don't want to be blindsided. Mm -hmm. It's like the, f it's, it's the reality, right? That's like looming there. Yeah. Um, to have suffered through all of these illnesses uh, some more serious than others, but to have been confronted with your mortality to mm -hmm. a degree that exceeds most 36 year olds mm -hmm. and to have, uh, as you just said, witnessed the death of your grandfather, mm -hmm. um, to have lost Allison. Mm -hmm. Like, where do you stand on, on death and dying mm. having, um, really come close to it? Yeah. Um, so a friend of mine, her, a friend of hers just died and, um, and I, we got together and I was like, let's, you know, let's like lie on the floor and eat pizza and not talk about our feelings. So we did that, but then we talked about our feelings and, um, while lying on the floor. Well, we were, we were sitting, I, I really wanted to lie on the floor, but I also wanted to eat pizza and I couldn't <laughs> eat pizza lying down. So 
it's it's was, very difficult. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I miscalculated my social <laughs> offer. So we were talking and I could feel myself start to say, because this person died after a severe illness. How old? Like, all right, 30, 35, 30, uh-huh. you know, yeah. so, regular age as I've started calling this like in between age. Yeah, right? I'm yeah. like, yeah, that person's a regular age. <laughs> But still extremely young. Extremely young. Yeah. I mean, so tragic. And, um, and I could feel myself start to be like, well, you know, and then I just said like, there's no silver lining. I was like, this is fucked up. Like death is fucked up. And, and there's, there's nothing, there's nothing good about this, you know? And that's kind of my stance, I think. Um, and, and my stance is also that, um, that a fear of death and an unwillingness to turn towards it causes profound suffering in our culture. And I know when I was really sick, a lot of people were like, you are so strong. Your indomitable spirit will, will guide you through, <laughs> right. you know, like you, you definitely won't die. And I kept being like, I don't know, man, I really might like, I might be really fucking smart and really strong and have been through some shit and I might still die. And it has nothing to do with my spirit or how hard I tried or whatever. Like, I think that, um, you know, and I feel so strongly with, with Allison too, where people were like, um, you know, like, like the language around like battling illness and, and, and all of that. And I'm like, she, she did everything right. You know, I mean, she had an indomitable spirit and what, and like she died because death is more powerful than her fucking positive vibes. Right. Um, and I just get so angry when people are like, oh, well, like, you know, like when John McCain was diagnosed and people were like, well, John McCain is a hell of a fighter and he'll fight this one. <laughs> I was like, fuck you, man. John McCain is like, he's got he's glioblastoma. Like, yeah, he's it's over. Th- you don't come back from glioblastoma. Right. Like you just don't. I you know. know. I know. I have, like I have, uh, I've known a couple of people, like friends, parents and stuff like that. And my buddy, who's the neurologist, mm-hmm. You know, I've talked to him about it because he sees patients all the time, and he's right. like, "That one's just rough." Yeah, there's not much they can do. No, you got about a year. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I get so resentful at that. People, um, people are people are uncomfortable. They don't know what to it. say. That's it. Yeah. But I think part of the reason why they don't know what to say and why they're so uncomfortable is that in our culture, like Western culture, American culture, we insulate ourselves. Yeah. We don't. We turn away. We hide yeah. our dead. Yeah. It's not like you're in like Bodh Gaya and they're like, like cremating people. On, you know what right, I'm saying? Like right. you go to certain cultures and there's a much like healthier and hardcore mm-hmm. uh, engagement with yeah. mortality. And here it's like, when is the last time most of us, I mean, you see an ambulance go by. Yeah. You might have like a quiet moment in your car, like while you're pulled off to the side of the road, like wondering who's in there. Right. <laughs> or you, you lose a loved one, you know, and you go yeah. to the hospital and you're sort of. But even in a hospital in yeah, America, it's like sealed off. And yeah. what, when do they move the bodies around? I've been in hospitals. I've never seen like the mm-hmm. body, the, mm-hmm. you know, it's all handled under, uh, yeah. undercover. Yeah. And I just think that that's such a disservice to our humanity. Um, I mean, I, someone um, described the book as like cheerily brutal. And I was like, I think that that's kind of my personal brand. <laughs> Um, it's a good brand. It's a great brand, right? So somebody will be like, oh, listen, I have, you know, a friend of mine has sort of recurring cancer of various forms. And um, 
And she'll just tell me like, yeah, you know, I have like little baby cancers in my lungs. And I'm like, well, yep, they're like, you sounds like you have cancer. I mean, and, and it's like, I'm not being dispassionate. I'm not, not care, but it's like, I think that a lot of people are saying to her like, oh, well, you know, you beat it last time. You'll beat it this time. It's like this, it's like this glossing over of their own discomfort. Yeah. Um, and I remember when my grandfather was dying, my mom, you know, his breathing was changing and my mom was like, it doesn't look good. And I, and I woke up the morning that he died and everybody said, it's bad today. It doesn't look good. And I kept thinking, what would happen if we removed good and bad from this experience? And we were like, it looks like grandpa is, is dying today. This is dying. Right, right. And if we were just like, oh, this is, na- this is now an experience that we're doing. And the moment at which he died, everybody was really being like themselves the most. So I was sitting there with one palm up and one palm down with my feet on the floor, like meditating. Okay. The palm down was to ground myself right. and the palm up was to be like, like my prayer was like, I invite whatever is happening, right? Like I invite it. And so I'm doing this. My mom is By the like, way, this feels like a Wes Anderson scene somehow. Like the- I mean, I love that. That's great. Please, <laughs> please, uh, uh, Wes Anderson, I'm, you know, call my agent. Um, so I'm doing that. My uncle is like checking his like, his, he works for like a big tech tech company. So he's like checking his like Slack or whatever. Uh-huh. He doesn't work for Slack, but um, my mom is like very concerned, right? Mo- you know, monitoring, which is sort of her vibe. My grandmother is, as I described, just, you know, looking at him really lovingly. My uncle is also doing that. And then my aunt, I, 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 in my memory, she was like drinking a Coors Light at like 11 a.m. But, you know, not not alcoholically, but just sort of like trying, trying to cope. It's like, God, we're all ourselves right now. But the moment at which we realized that he had died, my mom like runs out of the room and just tries to get as far away as possible. Interesting. And I was sitting there and then my, my aunt was like, you should go, like, go find your mom. Were you still in meditation pose? Yeah. You were? Yeah. I mean, I was just like, I was really, really, really trying to just be like, okay, like this, like this is, this is not a mistake. This is not a mistake. I think that's the thing with death. It's like, it's not. I mean, but also like he was super old. So, you know, I, I, but it's like, is it a mistake when a young person, like maybe that's like a bad road to go down. But, um, so I, I ran out, I like gave my mom a hug and she was crying. And I just kept saying like, you're like, like this is the, you're doing, you're doing like the right thing. Like you're doing so like this crying is great. You know, keep crying. Um, but that experience felt really transformative for me and, the next day, I kept like calling everybody, being like, "Have you ever been in the room when somebody died?" And a lot of people hadn't. They were like, "Oh no, that mm, that sounds like my father, who I always think has experienced like all things in the world." He was like, "No," and his mother died a couple months ago, and we were with her up until the moment of death. But then she actually died when we were all like not with her, which sometimes happens. Sometimes right. I think people die when they, they have to be alone. Yeah. They kind of want to be alone before they let go. It's right. hard. Like, I don't need people watching me. <laughs> right. Well, that's what my grandmother said. She's like, I just want you to know, like, I don't think that I want what happened to Bill. Like, I don't, that's not, yeah. you know? And then I was like, okay, well, do you want to hear our experience? Like, our, I was like, my experience was really beautiful. My experience wasn't that I was like watching something happen at a carnival. Well, I was just reading this book by someone who's worked in hospice, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of deaths. Yeah. 
And it's just like this range of experiences. Like sometimes it's really sloppy. Person's like thrashing and terrified. And mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like you can get all sorts of different yeah. deaths. Like yeah. You think you're going to like this whole, uh, this whole notion too of like, I want to have a good death. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I think my take on it now, having read through this and, uh, like listened to these or read these experiences, like, I mean, it's good to prepare, but like, you can't predict like how it's going to go, like yeah. what the body's going to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a wild, wild card, yeah. but one of the common themes or like semi-common themes is that as difficult as the dying process can be, the end has a tendency, like the real end has a tendency to be peaceful. Mm-hmm. Like the body knows how to die. Yeah, Human, exactly. Like bodies know how to be born. Bodies know yeah. how to die. Yeah. The shutting down process, there can be a lot of emotion and emotional resistance mm -hmm. to it. And there can be physical pain and yeah. all manner of discomforts. But like when the body does shut down and you're there for that reality, yeah. more often than not, what I hear from people is that like, wow, there was like a light in the room or like everyone was themselves. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. this, it has this clarifying effect. Yes. Yes. And it's a deep relief. Yeah. <laughs> or it can feel like a deep yeah. relief. Like, oh, wow. Like everyone's guard is down. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when something happens, like my friend with her friend who just died at 30 something, like, I think it's, I think it's harder to get that level of equanimity. But I also like, I mean, this is really a product of living in the Bay Area for nine years, but like, I don't think death is the end, and I think that like yeah. Where are you spiritually? Um, I am. I am spiritual. Um, I was raised Quaker, so I have like some experience just sort of sitting quietly and believing that the divine is in all of us. Um, is that what Quakers do? I don't know. Quakers. Yeah, yeah. So Quaker meeting for worship is um, it's an hour, and you sit silently uh, with a number of other people, and if you're moved to speak, then you speak, but. It's generally understood that the first half hour is kind of like quiet time. Uh, what's with, and there's like a thing in Quakerism that I read about, and I'm I'm blanking on what the terminology is about listening. It's not deep listening. Oh, active listening. Something I don't know. There's yeah. like a, there's like a you know there's yeah. a, a phrase that that is used I think in the Quaker faith if I'm remembering this correctly, mm. which is like not dissimilar at all from like deep listening in Buddhism mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I like the idea of everybody sitting quietly together. It's beautiful. And you yeah. do it for an hour. And then at the end, you shake hands with everybody and you say, good morning, friend. So everybody's a friend. It's the, it's the religious society of friends. There's this deep egalitarianism. There's it's, nobody who's... And it's way easier to be friends with people who don't talk. <laughs> Just thank you so much for keeping your fucking mouth shut, friend. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so that was like the that was sort of the the backdrop. Um and then and then I was like intensely atheist and like, you know, this observable world is the only world that exists and whatever. Uh -huh. And then um and then I got sober and people were like, Well, you know, do you have a higher power and I was like, My higher power is my own mind, like, you know, sorry, you're a weak, weird, weird person. Sheep. Totally. And then I decided at a certain point to act as if I have a higher power. I was like, what would happen if I just pretended? And then I started pretending and that worked really well. And then I got really sick. And then I remember like, like the foxhole prayer, you know, like I was in an MRI machine and I was like, I have nothing. There's nobody in this MRI machine with me. I'm fucked if I don't have a higher power. 
So I'm just going to like really kind of cross over this threshold. And, and what is like, a higher power? Is it God? Like, like is it I just mean, that's like, like a shorthand with like an asterisk? Um, yeah. But I mean, like, it's like, cause I can tease it out and it's like, I guess God, God's kind of a, it, it, the word has been so misused, I feel like, or mm-hmm. it gets confusing. Yeah. So higher people say higher power, I think just because they don't want to attach all this like loaded meaning. Right. But it, isn't it just kind of like. I don't understand exactly what's going on. And this is pretty incredible. Yeah. I'm just going to honor that. (laughs) For me, it's just a sense that like I will be taken care of in some way, kind of no matter what. Right. So I'm going through a situation now. When is this going to air? Probably like in a month. Okay, great. So by then things will have changed. So I'm, (laughs) um, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving a relationship that I was in. Uh Uh-huh. And it's very intense and, you know, but it's astonishing how many things are happening that are just really like every day I talk to a different person and I'm able to hear what they have to say. So like a week ago, I was like, you know, fuck my husband. He is trash garbage. I'm kicking him out. And this week I talked to somebody and I was like, oh, man, like I fell into a codependent hole like I can't participate in this, you know, for me, regardless of what my husband is doing. And I couldn't have heard that a week ago. And that's why I didn't see this person until two days ago. And I didn't, he wasn't available to talk until today. It's things like that where I just choose to believe that these are like examples of what happens when I can let go and have a certain like ease and grace in my life. Because what I want to do is like act out of ego and pride and, um, and like make decisions and be really dramatic and whatever. And, um, and instead, like, I just wake up and I think, okay, I'm going to believe that I have a higher power that is caring for me. And that word care is crucial. It's not a higher power. That's like, slash God. That's like, well, we're going to see how you do today. And if you deserve the cookie, then I will give you the cookie. And it's not like a puppeteer or like an orchestrator. No, no, it's, it's really just the inward sense that like, how, how, and like, how would I act today if I believed that everything were unfolding as it should be? How would I act? What, like, would I struggle less? Would I resist things less instead of being like, you know, I'm like looking up all these laws and I'm like, oh, well, I'm like in the, you know, I'm in the middle of like jurisdictions. Like, this is so, this is so annoying. I can't do this quickly. And then I'm like, well, what if I'm not supposed to do this quickly? So it's really like, I mean, it's entirely sort of internal to go back to my grandmother. It's like half of me thinks this is me like having a neurological experience and just like coping with my reality and and giving myself like a trick, you know? And then half of me thinks that the events in my life are so extraordinary and I have been so taken care of at every turn that maybe it's possible that something is caring for me. And how nice that feels when I believe it. But I really, I go back and forth between like, this is an intellectual exercise. And this is like a deep, I mean, I've never had a burning bush experience. I've never had like, you know, I've never been like tapped on the shoulder by Jesus as, as people that I know I have experienced. Waiting. I know. I'm like, I'll, that's fine. That sounds great. <laughs> I love like sublimating myself to like just, you know, total ritual. Um, but, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and I was like, God, you know, Everything works out for me. Like everything really, like I always come out on top. I always land on my feet. Like 
I don't know. I, I want to believe that instead of thinking like, can you believe the horrors that have happened to me? And I think when I practice this sort of daily, like, okay, I'm, I'm going to act as if I have a higher power. I'm going to act as if everything is happening as it should be. Then I can come out of that with the feeling that like, wow, I really got it made. Whereas like some of the horrifying events in my book might, might indicate that I should be like, gosh, like, why is my life full of suffering? But I don't think that. Well, see, that's where I think I get stuck. Mm-hmm. I think like, well, it's like, we are the stories we tell ourselves, mm-hmm. you know? So be careful what stories you're telling yourselves. Right. And mine is like, I'm always taken care of. That's a good story to tell yourself. Yeah. And yeah. like, you know, it's like, and you have bad things happen to you in your life that are clearly formative, but maybe are not definitive. I don't know. It's like trying to strike a balance, you know, because these things do happen and they do yeah. suck and they are difficult, right? but they don't have to define you. I mean, they, they shape you. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's like, it's like trying to have a healthy relationship with it versus, right. Oh, what was me? Or this is mm-hmm. why everything's fucked up. And right. I, I just drew an unlucky hand. Right. Yeah. I've never felt like that, but I also, I mean, like, you're seeing me like fairly recovered from like my severe PTSD that like really prevented me from like going outside or like talking to people for a year, you know, like I couldn't withstand any sort of casual physical touch. I couldn't shake people's hands. I couldn't, um, I mean, I was really, really in a hole and I wanted to get out. And so I did a lot of work so that I could like be in the world again. So PTSD related to, to all my surgeries and almost dying and the trauma. I mean, I think, how did it come on? Um, I, so everything happened and I was fairly dissociated, which I think is reasonable. And then I went to the desert and then I came back from the desert to the Bay area for surgery and then decided to stay and do this like yoga teacher training and this style of yoga that I'd been doing that had been really helpful. Which is, um, it's, it's called stellar flow. It's like in the forest yoga lineage, which is this very like emotional, um, in the forest? For, no, it's called it's called forest yoga, like Anna Forest. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Who um, a, a lot of teachers have now distanced themselves from her. So, but there, there's another like guy, thi- John Friend too. There's yeah. a lot, of, like of course, Bikram is like right. a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's there's like, like I have a little ambivalence about being like forest yoga, but what, what did Anna Forest do? What's the claim? Oh, like the, the good claim or the, the why people are disappearing. Why claim. people are disappearing. Um, her approach is very, it can be perceived as very aggressive in a way. And she's very oriented towards people having like breakthroughs. And so I think a couple people started to feel with like more information about trauma kind of being surfaced that actually her, kind of insistence that like people should be pushed to the sort of breaking point where they then have a cathartic release is actually not the most helpful. So an example is like, she would insist on doing hands-on assists to anybody, no matter what. And, um, and then the teacher who taught me had the same approach in her studio where she was like, listen, like, like if you don't want the healing, I mean, I'm totally paraphrasing, but it was sort of like this healing is good 
And even if it impacts you, like that's your trigger, you know, that's your trigger to work through. Everything is like a growth opportunity. No teacher and, ever gives me a hands-on assist. Oh, really? I'm just a sweaty, disgusting yeah, middle-aged you got, man. You got to go to like forest inspired, you know, <laughs> I think they're just like, yeah. I think I'm going to skip this guy. <laughs> He's wheezing. <laughs> And, uh, it's like a perspiration issue. Right. I mean, that also totally happens. It, well, it's kind of gross. Yeah. I mean, you, you got some of yeah. these yoga teachers are pretty hands. I mean, they're like earthy. They don't care. Right. They're, right. Just, they're enlightened. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so are you certified? Yeah. You teach? Not now, but I, yeah, I was teaching for a while. Um, I'd had, a, I'd had it a rehab, which was like a growth, a growth opportunity. <laughs> right. <laughs> Lots of hands-on assists. But yeah, I mean, I learned all this stuff about like energy and feeling people, you know, there, it, it's a lot of, I think the strengths of that style are that we are really taught to see people and to see where they carry an emotional thing in their body. You know, so now I sort of feel like I can look at people and be like, oh, I can see if you're like next to your body or in your body or that there's like a tension here. So I'm not doing it to you right How now. Am don't you? How am I doing? I, know, I was like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not like close seeing you right now. Um, so, so that was one way that I... Um, Right. So I came back and I started this teacher training and, um, and a student gave me an assist and he touched my neck and I became almost catatonic with terror. And I ran out of the room and I was in the hallway and I kept saying like, like my body is not here for you to fucking practice on. And I'd had a lot of surgeries from like trainee surgeons cause I was at teaching hospitals. And I remember just being like, Wait, like you have like students operating on you? Yeah. Is that I mean, okay? it's, uh, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, I, I like, you know, I signed the consent form and they were like, well, the surgeon is in the room, you know, but like, it's actually the trainee that does it. Okay. Fingers crossed. <laughs> right. Um, I guess it turned out fine. Um, so, so that sort of unlocked something for me where I was like, okay, objectively, I trust this nice person who literally put his hands on my neck for like a second. But subjectively, I am, I, I cannot be in this, like, I'm not in this room. I, I, you know, it's the trauma is overwhelming. And I was like, I need help with this. Um, I'm part of, I was part of a reading group at Berkeley. And I remember I would go to my advisor's office where we met and I would like have to sit facing the door. If anybody like touched my arm casually, I would be like, I'm going to die. Like, I would just be like, I'm dying. I can't be touched. And, um, and I couldn't have two people talking to me from different directions because I think that that had happened a lot, you know, while I was like under anesthesia, whatever. Um, and I was like, okay, I can't function in the, in the world. Um, and so I just thought a lot, I mean, I did EMDR. Um, I worked with this like amazing body worker who taught me these ways to begin to, touch other people and sort of really, really, really profoundly think about consent in a really like kind of regular way. Um, and so she would like put her finger out and then she would let me use my finger and touch her finger and see that like it was okay. And then eventually we would like clasp hands. And she taught me like, if I touch somebody first, then I can let them touch me. So I'm doing this yoga teacher training, which is based entirely on learning assists and touching because that's a huge part of the thing. And what was extraordinary is that I realized that I was having these responses. I talked to my teacher and she was like, nobody's going to touch Eva. Like, no, like Eva is not available to be touched. And so for the 20 hours every weekend that I was in this training, I could let my guard down 
and be like, nobody's going to touch me. How does it feel to be in the world when I feel this safe? And then really incrementally be like, okay, I'm going to touch you. And certain people I could feel safe with and certain people I didn't. And like, it really took like a year for me to now, you know, I can be in a crowd, no problem. Somebody can touch me on the back, no problem. But like, again, to get, to get sort of like, you know, the, the like core, a core message of the book is like, I gave myself so much time to come back that when I was back, I was really back instead of being like, all right, snap out of it. You know, it's been, well, which is another, which is another, um, characteristic of our culture when it comes to illness is this mm-hmm. like, like you hear it with people who have the flu, even oh, I, yeah. I never get the flu. Oh, I, I was back in two days. Like, oh, I'm like, they're like coughing still. They're like, I yeah. feel fine. I just tough yeah. it out. I just yeah. want, and I'm, I'm guilty of some of that. And people actually f- like they get proud of their immune systems mm-hmm. or they feel guilty about getting like strep throat. And it's like, what yeah. the fuck is that all about? Yeah. It's so terrible. And that's, I mean, I've been, I've been getting a lot of questions about like social media and you, you know, do I think social media makes people lonely? And I'm like, no, it's capitalism. Like capitalism makes us lonely. I think we're on social media to like try and connect. Like it's not inherently good. I mean, yes, horrific problems with like disinformation, et cetera. But I'm like, what if we didn't live under capitalism? What would you, what like so, democratic socialism? Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah. That's the direction we should be going. I think so. That's my instinct. Yeah. I feel, yeah. I just feel like the pendulum swings and I feel like we're living through an era. I've been living through this era my entire life where the pendulum has been swinging in the direction of like hyper individualism mm-hmm. and like um, sanctioned greed and corruption. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's just, yeah. it's too far. It's like exactly. we, people have lost their sense of connectivity. Yeah. And uh, a sense of collective responsibility. And there has to be some balance. Like I feel fairly moderate. Like I don't want to stifle anybody pursuing their dream or wanting to like really achieve. Right. Great things. You know, there yeah. are, they have, there have to be those people in a, in a functioning human community. Right. It's not like I want everybody to be the same, but there just has to be, um, like a, a more equal distribution of resources. Right. So that we don't have people sleeping in the streets like we do in San Francisco and right. Los Angeles. Right. Like en right. mass. Right. Like that's the most glaring example to me. It's like, this, this can't be the best yeah. we can do. Like what in the fuck is going on right. when somebody in a Tesla is rolling by like mm-hmm. a tent mm-hmm. city, mm-hmm. like less than a mile from their mansion right. that costs $5 million. Right. And like, I'm all for people doing great things, but what if it weren't tied to the accumulation of capital? Right. I mean, what if it was like, like, great, I want to write a book. I'm glad that I got some money from my advance. That was nice. It helped me to feel that I like really had a real job to do, but it works out to like a very low yearly salary. Um, but what if like I could be acknowledged for the achievement of having written a book in a way that wasn't necessarily monetary, you know, it's like, I I believe those studies that are like over $70,000, like people are kind of the same. And I got to tell you, like, so I have this consulting company, which is how I make money. And I basically do, um, I talk to architects and I tell them what to do in various ways. None of them design and it makes a lot of money. And now I have the problem of having like, like I have the same financial insecurity. I have the same, um, concern. I have this, like, I, I feel the same in relation to my money as I did when I had, when I made like 40 grand a year. Cause now I have employees and I have to pay payroll taxes and I have to fucking manage payroll and I have to do like all these things. I mean, I choose to, I don't have to, 
Um, but I'm like, this doesn't make me happier. Like my income is higher, but I'm not happier because now I'm managing it and trying to figure out how to like minimize my tax burden, quote unquote. Right. Like I'm now a bad capitalist and I'd so much rather be in a society where like I didn't have to work as hard. I didn't have as much stress, but I could like have a nice life and yeah. be a working writer. Yeah. You know, what well, a dream. Like I, I sometimes worry about how bad of a capitalist I am because it's the system that we live in. And so it naturally favors people who take to mm-hmm. it. People mm-hmm. who are like hyper competitive, people who have like really good natural business instincts and skills yeah. and talents. Yeah. But if you're like a writerly nerd person who likes to podcast, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> I'm just like, holy cow. And then there's also like, these are things I've been struggling with, like just recently, you know, it's like you have these cycles of, um, things that like trouble you or whatever, and, um, they come and go, but it's like feeling idealistic mm-hmm. about the arts and feeling like you want to be conscious of how fragile life is. Like this is your one precious life, right? Right. That whole thing. Yeah. Like when you get to the end, hopefully at an advanced age, like what do you want to look back and say you spent your life doing? Yeah. Do you want to say, well, I was really competitive. Right. I beat the shit out of my comp- you know, competition. Mm-hmm. I, got, I got this huge pile of money. I worked 70 hours a week and I... You know, I sold uh, widgets or did advertising or, you know, whatever it is. Right. And that's not to denigrate because like, I don't know. And I know everybody's got to make a living. But I guess what I'm getting at is that like for somebody whose natural inclination is toward the arts and toward these things that are not valued by our culture all that much. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm made to feel worried. Like, holy shit. Like I'm just wired to get crushed. Yeah. You know, you can have that sense. And then the other thing is that I sometimes like I was the guy in college at the party who like there's like a joint going around and it was mm-hmm. like everyone was talk, the music was playing and everyone's like, we're all going to live art lives, man. We're going to change the world and be creative. <laughs> I'm the guy who still thinks that. Yeah. Like, like everyone else, like a year after college was like, I just hung my real estate license and uh, sold some condos and you know, like, mm-hmm. and I was just like, wait, everybody, it felt like everybody like left the party and I was still right. the idiot, like right. there, like seeing <laughs> totally same. Yeah. I mean, I just spent $200,000 getting a PhD and now I'm like, great. I don't like, why did I, hmm. Yeah. I mean, I learned some useful skills maybe and enjoyed it sort of got, got to get a harasser off campus. That was, I think that was sort of worth it. I think that's why I went to grad school. Yeah. Right. Um, oh, that, that I read work. about that. Some oh, professor yeah. at Berkeley harassed yeah. you Yeah. and he's yeah. gone. Yeah. Okay. That shit happens all the time. All the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think like, I think like too, to kind of circle back to capitalism, which is at, you know, at the core of your concerns and the concerns of your book is that, you know, when I talk about people making that like abrupt shift where it's like, yeah, man, let's all go change the world and make art to being like, Hey, let's sell condos or mm-hmm. widgets or whatever. Part of that, I think, is people abandoning their ideals or, you know, having like just practical realities of like bearing down on them and they feel like they have no right. choice. Right. And that's what capitalism does. Mm-hmm. It just like mm-hmm. forces the issue. You're yeah. like, well, I understand that by making X product, we're going to have to, de- you know, I'm participating in the destruction of the rainforest or whatever it is, but how else am I going to feed my family? Right. Like it co-ops you. Right. Exactly. Right. And that, 
doesn't make you feel good in the long run. <laughs> no. I mean, and there's a lot of like, um, there's a lot of disability activism that's like, sure, buying, you know, cut up vegetables in prepackaged plastic is bad for turtles. But if I don't do it, I can't eat. Like I, you know, I can't cut my own vegetables. And it's like, right. You like, of course, I'm, I would never say like, well, you know, you should think of the turtles and just don't eat any vegetables. Um, but it's these conditions just like, they pile up on us and they become astonishingly difficult to solve. And I think also, right. It's like, there, there's also this sort of neoliberal critique, which is like the emphasis on personal responsibility and recycling is so that we all sort of think, Oh, I'm doing a good thing while these enormous companies are like fracking and destroying entire, like, have you read um, Michael Lewis's the fifth risk? Oh, I'm scared too. Scared. So scary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's just like a nuclear wasteland under, you know, Eastern Washington and, uh, but I'm, you know, drinking this juice out of a plastic bottle and we'll put it in the recycling later, even though I should have got the glass bottle. Um, so. Did you have a choice? No. Yeah, they don't, they don't mean That's some, a thing. Some, some stores, there's glass, but usually it's plastic. Yeah. Then you recycle it and you like kind of cross your fingers and go, I hope this really happens. Right. Right. It's hard. Like, and you know, you can't be perfect. No. Like everybody's complicit in it. We are, you know, it's just the nature of things and. Um, there's no way to live a human life and not do some damage, but yeah. it, it, but it is also true that you can do things to dramatically reduce the amount of harm that you do Yes, <laughs> like yes. The, through the choices you make, particularly consumer choices. Yeah. I think, I think that's the most like obvious way to kind of flex your muscles mm -hmm. just because we're constantly buying shit. You know, yeah. you go to the store, like you, you have a moment to like decide what you're going to buy or not buy. And, uh, I don't know, those things shift markets and change yeah. incentives and stuff. And I think we also, yes, yes. And I mean, I think we also have a lot of like emotional ability. And if we, so my therapist started a podcast called the healing feeling shit show, which is great. I like that name. And it's basically like, we all actually need to feel our feelings and we mostly don't know how, you know, so here, I'm going to sort of walk you through feeling things. And, you know, one of the points that I, that I talked about, one of the things that I learned from being friends with Allison is like, I am nicer because of my friendship with Allison. I'm much more compassionate. I'm kinder. My friend who's traveling with me on book tour this morning, she was like triggered to, I mean, she was like shut down. She couldn't get out of it. And I could feel, I wanted to be like, my event is tonight. I need you to snap out of it, right? Everything in me was like, get your fucking shit together. You know, this is not the time to why, be triggered Why, did, by they, why did your friend shut down? Oh, her family? She did a comedy performance and her family went and oh. they were like, they were recording her with their phones, like really sort of like, <laughs> like, and she was like, could you please put your phones away? But then one of them didn't. And then she was like, nope, seriously, could you put your phone away? And then her sister got mad at her. Uh -huh. right? Yeah. And she was just like, I should quit comedy, you know, all this stuff. And I was trying all my tools, you know, I was like, okay, like, you know, do you want to squeeze a pillow? Do you want to like, you know, we're in present time, whatever. And she was just like gone. She was just like checked out. And, um, and finally, you know, instead of saying like, okay, listen, I get that you're having a thing, but snap out of it, which is what my family said to me when I was super fucked up. I was just like, you know, I'm just going to tell you some things that have worked for me. And then she was like, can we go for a walk? And we went for a walk. And I was like, you know, 
before my book came out, like I had this intense terror. I was talking to a friend of mine and he was like, he's very intuitive. He was like, Eva, the word that comes to mind is pageant. Did you ever do a pageant? And I was like, no. But when I was eight, I wrote a play and performed it at my Waldorf school. And I thought that the play was about a king and like his, his like wives and some demons. And my parents came to the play and they saw that it was about my feelings about their divorce. And they told me later that they'd been watching the play and cringing. And so as I was preparing to release this book, I was like, I'm doing it again. I'm that fucking eight-year-old who thinks that she's doing a play about this thing, but it's obviously about this other thing of which I should be ashamed because other people are ashamed. And my friend was like, their shame is not yours. And he was like, maybe when the book comes out, like, you know, he was like, put a picture of yourself as an eight-year-old in your pocket. I was like, I'm not a wizard. I cannot do like, look at myself as a child yet, but I can like, think about eight-year-old Eva and be like, listen, like, this is different. Like I got you covered. So I tell this story to my friend and then she just starts crying. And so we're like walking down sunset and she's crying. We go to a coffee store. She's crying. Like, you know, and I basically sat with her until she was like, oh, I can see colors in the room again. Like I'm going to eat something sour. I'm going to put an ice cube. And she came back. And the point of this is like, I don't have that ability to do that because I was inherently like taught that, but it's because like I was so traumatized and people were so loving and I just picked up all these tools. And so like I get to walk through the world and know what my feelings are. She gets to walk through the world and know what her feelings are. And I think that like we, if we all kind of started to be like, maybe I'm reaching for Instagram right now because I feel like I'm five and my family like is rejecting me, which is what the feeling was, was that she was being rejected by her family. I feel like I should tweet that, that line. Do it. I, <laughs> I love your Twitter. I'm always like, mm. I, was, I was like, trying not to be too thirsty before we recorded. I was like, I'm coming in. Um, but like, maybe then we would, we, we would feel the need to consume less, right? If we just like paused and like, you know, so like a hundred percent, we should make conscious choices at the yeah. grocery store, but also like, Cry in public a little more. Yeah. Well, and, and like like you say, like maybe pay attention to why we do certain things, especially things we do a lot. Yeah. Like social media. Like why why yeah. are we diving into our phones every five minutes? Oh, get that dopamine. I mean, okay. So here's this is a kind of an aside, but it's something that uh, I'm really fascinated by is people who have these huge Twitter followings, where like every single thing they say. It's like 7,000 people yeah. retweeting and liking and commenting. Each of those hits or each of those likes and retweets and comments we know delivers a shot of dopamine, mm -hmm. which I'm sure your grandmother, the neurologist, would be like, you're just uh, experiencing dopamine. <laughs> exactly. But what we don't have any precedent. Like if you think of famous people of yore, mm -hmm. like the biggest dopamine hit they probably got was on like a red carpet. Mm -hmm. Or maybe like, you know, when they're on like the uh, Tonight Show or something. Yeah. But now it's like anytime you want it. Yeah. You just say like, I just had an omelet and it's like, wow, you yeah. know, what is that doing? My question is, what is mm -hmm. that doing to the human brain for people who have that experience? And then the rest of us who have like a much lesser experience, yeah. but like, I'm, I'm especially fascinated by the people who have that intensity of experience yeah. because we, there's no, we don't know. Like we're yeah. going to find out, I guess. Yeah. But I wonder, my, my gut tells me 
it might not be that healthy. <laughs> I mean, part of me, yes, I agree. And also I think about like every technology has, has felt like it is like the one that is going to destroy us. Right. So I don't know if you're a train history buff, but uh, not especially. <laughs> <laughs> so in the 1850s, when train travel, I think it was the 1850s, historians forgive me, right? Around the middle of the 19th century, right? Train travel was popularized and people panicked and they were like, the science shows that our brains cannot tolerate going faster than the speed of a horse because a horse up until that point was like the, 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 the most technology that we had, right? Um, and people were like, you know, there's all these scientific studies and like, if your brain vibrates at a certain speed, like, you know, you will die, it will explode, like whatever. And so part of me is like, okay, as like a, a fake historian with like half of a PhD in like sort of history, like, this is just a condition of humanity to be like the technology that we have access to right now is the one that we can, that we are not physically equipped to, to cope with. And on the other hand, I'm like. Yeah, no, this is really fucked. I, this, it feels like it's coming to a head, though. Like, it is. Like the yeah. nuclear wasteland under eastern Washington. Right. Like certain technologies legit have the capacity to wipe out life on Earth. Yes. Yes. And then AI. Oh, yeah. The AI stuff is the really The robot creepy. stuff. I yeah. mean, it just feels like it could easily be like the genie that we can't put back in the bottle. Yeah. And it just feels like once the technology becomes democratized bad actors can just exploit it at some point, yeah. like once it's out there. And like, you think about these, uh, untraceable, like 3d guns, Oh fuck! Yeah. you know, I forget what yeah. they're called, but it's like, Oh, well shit. Yeah. Once that, if that ever, that genie ever gets out of the bottle, you know? So it's like, it's really, I don't know. I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be like a Debbie downer, but it just seems like we're, we're at a point where we've got to make some big decisions about who we want to be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So a couple of more questions yeah. um, regarding your book. The first of which is uh, writing about people besides yourself mm. in an intimate way. Mm -hmm. Difficult moments, deaths. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, like, how did you give yourself permission to do that? How did you handle the issues surrounding that when it came to the publication of the mm -hmm. book? Like, I, I'm curious. Like, yeah. I'm kind of wrestling with that. So... I did the thing where you write it as though nobody will ever read it, right? Um, and then I changed... So there are three sort of main characters. There's Layla, Allison, and then Lauren. And Layla, I, I told her I was writing a book, and I was like, it turns out you're actually a major character in the book. And she was like, that's great. Please use a pseudonym. I was like, great. So I did. And then I read her the pages that she was in, and she approved them, basically. Um, Allison was dead, but I was most concerned about her, um, you know, from whatever, whatever specter beyond the thin veil she, she's at. And I talked to a friend of mine, um, Grace Lavery, who's an amazing writer. And I was like, I really, really, really need Allison to like this book. And I feel weird guilt that like I'm writing about her and all this stuff. And Grace was just like, but you're not writing this book for Allison. Like the point of this book isn't like, look, Allison, I did a good job. Like you're writing this book because this is a book that you need to write. And I think you can just sort of make peace with like, you don't actually need Allison's approval. And I was like, oh, that's, I'd never thought of that. 
And then I talked to um, a friend of mine who was like, oh, no, I can I can talk to Allison for you. And so we basically had this sort of like psychic experience and and actually talked about Wait, changing you have a, her like name. A psychic friend. Yeah, I have a psychic friend. And she was like, oh, if you want me to talk to Allison, like we can do it right now. And, and she I was talked like, to Allison. she talked to Allison. And I was like, do you want me to change your name? And the answer was like, my name isn't mine. I don't have an attachment to it. So whatever will make you feel most artistically free, that's what you should do. And I was like, that's an answer that Allison would give. And I'd written this Kindle single like five years before and Allison had hated it. And so my friend who's sort of like, you know, being a medium between me and Allison, she's like, I was like, listen, I, pro I promise it's better than the Kindle single. And she was like, oh yeah, okay, good. Because that, that did not go over well. And I was like, I just feel like these are things that Allison would say. Is this how you talk to her or do you have, because you said earlier that you have contact, do you have contact with her outside of the... So that started and then I started paying attention to how I could feel her presence. Yeah. I was like, she's here. She's with us. I can feel. And like, my friend was like, oh, she really misses you. And I was like, I know that sounds so cliche, but like, I believe it. And my friend was sort of like, like Allison and I were very physically intimate and my friend sort of like snuggled up to me in the exact same way that Allison did. Like things that she couldn't have known, you know? And I remember being like, yeah, like, what's it like where you are? And she was like, oh, honestly, like, it's kind of boring. Like, I, I don't know. Like, it's like, it's different than I thought. And, um, Allison was saying, Allison was saying this, like yeah. the next realm was boring. Yeah. She was like, I don't know. And she said, she was like, honestly, like I miss getting all tangled up. You know, I just really miss like getting all like, oh, it's so like fun to just. And so I think about that now whenever I'm like, oh, that person's mad at me. I'm like, God, this is what Allison misses. You know, it's just being like all tangled up in this stuff. And then I could feel when she left. I mean, and that was so like, I was like, oh, now she's not here anymore. And I just started being like, what would it feel like if I just sort of opened that sensor and just assumed that it was real? You know, and again, my neurologist grandmother is like, well, we deal with extraordinary grief by like recreating what we think the person would have said using contact. Like that's entirely possible. Right. But whatever. So I've been asking Allison how she's feeling about all this. And she's like, yeah, it's cool. You know, it's great. I mean, uh, yeah, like I think she's sort of into it, but I think she's also a little bit ambivalent. And so I need to sort of get OK with that. And then Lauren I just read her her section and there was only one line that she wanted me to change and I changed it. Um, but I tried to really, and then other characters I didn't talk to, right? Like sort of walk on like ex-boyfriends, stuff like that. But I really tried to always use my relation, always focus on myself and my relationships with them. So like, let's assume that their behavior was impeccable, but I responded to their impeccable behavior in a dysfunctional way. And so like off the pages of the book, you know, one of, one of my ex-boyfriends, Charles, like he had some, you know, he was a human person going through his human experience. But if I had written in like, well, when he we broke up, you know, he told me this super fucked up thing he'd been doing that would have ripped the reader out of like it being about my experience. It was like, let's assume that everybody else behaved super well, but, but also like, that's your authority. Like right. you, it's not your, it's not your place like right. to tell the stories of other, you're telling your story. Exactly. In memoir. Exactly. And so whenever like anything that they did came into play, like 
I had to, or I didn't have to, but I chose to just always be like, like, it doesn't matter what they did. It matters how I responded to it. And I, and I panicked and I talked to my friend, Adam Nemet, who wrote this great novel called We Can Save Us All. And I was like, is my book a burn book? Like, did I miss this? Is it actually like, you know, fuck you, fuck you. And he was like, no, dude, like you're hardest on yourself, you know, but it isn't, he was like, you're very fair. And he's friends with my college ex-boyfriend, Tim. And I think Tim was like, so Eva wrote a memoir, like, what's up? Am I in it? And, and my friend Adam was like, you know what? It's really fair. Like, that's what I can say. That's all you can, I mean, that's, that's what you want. Exactly. But I really had to get really okay with all of these relationships before writing about them. Um, and I'm sure that in, I mean, I wrote like 90 pages about Cameron that was just basically like, well, let me tell you all the things that Cameron <laughs> did that were bad. And my editor was like, cool, 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 cool. Strong pages. Let's just put those aside. And those 90 pages of like, you know, a complaint are now two paragraphs where, where I really have equal responsibility in the end of the relationship, right? It's like, she criticized this well, I criticized this. Like she said this, I said this. That's a good editor. Oh, Helen Atzmott, Houghton Mifflin. Yeah. Well, that's the thing though. Editor. That's the thing though, is that, you know, talk, like I mentioned earlier, you know, wanting to tell this story, wanting to be honest, wanting to be fair, wanting to go there, but also knowing that there's a reader that you, you published it. So yeah. you're, you're, in, you're trying to be in communication with somebody. Mm -hmm. So that means you have to entertain to a certain extent. Yes. Um, and so I was curious cause you know, the book comes in, what is it like two fifty? Yeah. So it's yeah. like, you know, it's like fairly lean. Mm -hmm. Um, and you make decisions around, uh, economy. It sounds like you cut quite a bit. Oh yeah. 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 Um, you know, but those things, I think, you know, they wind up serving the reader and, uh, and then I think too, serving you, saving you from yeah. blowing up a friendship. <laughs> right. Totally. I mean, I was really lucky in that I was taking creative writing classes at UC Berkeley and I had, um, and I took fiction classes. So I was in seminar with Vikram Chandra who wrote sacred games, which is now this like, right. So he's the point of that is he's very into plot, right? I mean, he, the first page of sacred games, like a dog falls out of a very high window and dies in gruesome fashion. And he taught me that like plot is a powerful vehicle. Um, and I was really struggling with the proposals because I wrote six proposals and the first five were like, what is the argument? What is the point? They were like lyrical. They were out of time. They were like braided. They were like all this shit that like wasn't interesting. And then I finally just wrote like plot. I mean, the first chapter is what my proposal was. It was like, well, I met Allison. I blah, blah, blah. Describe her. Then we have these three exchanges and, and here's some moments of observation. Um, but I'm a very, very conventional writer. Like I believe in the three act structure. I believe in leading to a catharsis and having a moment and having a denouement and having individual acts also have their own pacing. Like I'm, I'm a very sort of like boring creative and I like hate talking about creativity. And whenever people are like, like I resent the artist's way to, to infinity. <laughs> you mean like the morning pages? And yeah. I'm like, I'm, it's such a fucking ego painful problem. Like I'm just so resistant. Cause I'm like, well, I'm not creative. I just do my job. You know, I'm just here to like, I'm an accountant, but for words, you know? And I think that that dispassionate approach lets me do the work. That this I is do. your grandmother in you right here. Totally. <laughs> I'm just like, everybody stop making a big deal. Just do your work. Um, but I think that that conventional approach really helped me in writing this. And also was like, 
I want somebody to read this. I want somebody to open the book and then want to read it because of the words that are already on there, not because of any pre-existing expectation or a sense that they should or or anything. And I sort of drop in a little like, here's how to read the book, um, like a couple pages in where I talk about Bart and Foucault and like the from work to text. And I'm like, the text is the thing that or the work is the thing that is there. But then the text is made in the relationship between reader and author as I'm sort of trying to be like, this book is now yours. Like in this moment, this book is yours. And whatever you read from it is is correct is right. Um, but I'm glad my advisor was like, I amused myself with your book on, on a turbulent airplane ride. And then she was like, maybe amused is the wrong word. But <laughs> my friend Jackie, who who was there, she was like, dude, it was still a page turner. And that's I was like, you thank want. you. That's a, like, that's a thing. Like you right. talk about three act structure and you talk about being boring creatively or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm sort of a fan of that. I think that there mm-hmm. are certain expectations. Like, like I think it's about manners. I use the word hosting, you know, like you yeah. have somebody into like you're bringing somebody into a book. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair that the reader should have certain expectations around what kind of ride they're going to have. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily mean that there can't be like twists and turns or darknesses or whatever, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, you do have to show them a good time somehow. Yeah. And I want them to feel really, really in good hands. And that's why I spent so much time thinking about like pacing and word choice and, um, you know, is this a comma? Is this a semi? Like I want the reader to be like, great. This is a writer who is in control of her tools right? She's in control of her material. I can relax because that's what I want as a reader. I want to be like, Ooh, all right. I'm in good hands. I trust wherever this is going to go. Um, the darkness is going to be titrated in. Right. I mean, and I do a lot of foreshadowing and part of that is like to prepare the reader. And also part of that is because Allison's death was foreshadowed to me in real life. And yet was an extraordinary shock when it happened. Um, but I love that you said manners because actually Allison said that I had really good manners. And so I feel like she was just like, what's up? I am here. Allison is actually inhabiting my body right now. Oh, amazing. <laughs> she wants me to let you know that it's fine that you used her name on this That's podcast. That's not her name. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's a pseudonym. <laughs> um, well, I think that, I mean, oh, and then the other thing is you said that the one hard part of the book to write, and I guess for obvious reasons was Allison's death. Yeah. Um, and it's just emotionally difficult, uh, trying to get it, you know, I'm, I'm imagining you're like, I want to get it right. Yeah. I mean, it was technically a huge challenge because I did not want to revert to cliche. Um, I wanted to describe the emotions, but also, I mean, yeah, it just felt like a puzzle and I wasn't sure how to solve it. And I wasn't sure the the pacing and I, and I didn't. Yeah, I just was like, I really need to find a way to illustrate the impact that this had on me without reverting to like, well, and then the world felt different, or I felt a hole, or like the axis changed, or, you know, but I was like, and also representing with really searing honesty, my ambivalence about the fact that she didn't die at the sort of narratively appropriate time, which is like, we have this beautiful goodbye, and then I go to Germany and I'm like, she will, I will return to, to Berkeley without Alice. And I come back and she's like still alive, but she's in a <laughs> hospital bed and she's like super like in and out of consciousness. And I'm like, well, this is awkward. It's like saying goodbye and then going the same direction as somebody, but yeah, like yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. times 40 billion. Right. 
And I felt so ashamed of my ambivalence. And I felt like, well, that's really, you know, I can't say that. So I have to write it, of course. Um, but I also just really wanted the reader to, I don't know, maybe remember their own grief and feel like grief is weird. Or like, I'm just always thinking about my role as like, kind of going first and saying the uncomfortable thing to give permission yeah. to the other person to then feel the uncomfortable it's just thing. such a relief. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm not the only person who felt weird when my parent was dying or whatever. And just like, yeah, you think these things are going to be scripted like they are in the movies. Right. And then you get inside of one of these experiences and you're yeah. like, oh, wow, that was sort of embarrassing or fun. Right. Or like, that was funny. Right. Even though like this person's mm-hmm. having their like, mm-hmm. like fluid drained from their lung. Or, exactly. Like all this shit can happen. Exactly. And it's a... Uh, it's it's a uh, a blend. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, it's been such fun talking with you and uh, being with somebody who is so good at talking about difficult things mm. and uh, and writing about it as well. So, congratulations on the book. Thank you for making time to come over. And uh, are you working on something else, or like uh, you know, I know you're a busy person, but you're just enjoying this ride. Yeah, I don't. I I have ideas, but they are all whiplashy counterpoints to the intimacy of the memoir so i'm like i shouldn't decide that i'm going to do like a deeply reported book about zoning codes or a horror <laughs> novel which are my two ideas i'm like i'm just i'm just gonna take a beat so yeah, yeah take, take i'm a just beat. on but this ride i think it's important especially like taking into consideration how long it takes to write a book and what effort goes into getting a book published there's nothing wrong with celebrating the publication mm-hmm. enjoying that moment giving yourself some time. <laughs> yeah. You know, like again, it goes back to this whole thing. Like, well, what's next? Right. Oh, I better be working on another one. I've always got to be a book ahead of myself. It's like, Jesus. Right. And that's the conventional wisdom is like the only way to cope with book publicity is to be writing another book. I mean, I've heard that from 99% of people. I've told myself that. Right. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just going to try and develop emotional self-care tools to be able to be present for my publication and feel all the feelings that come with it. Like this is its own experience that I can just show up for. How's your emotional experience of this podcast? Oh, so amazing. <laughs> a dream okay? come true. Yeah, no, I love talking to you. Yeah, it's amazing. You're a great, great conversationalist. Wow, it's been fascinating. It's easy. All I should yeah. do is sit here and listen. Mm, to it's a little people. more than that. Um, well, congratulations. Thank you. Best of luck on the rest of your tour. Thank you. And I wish you well. Same. All right. There she is. That's Eva Hagberg Fisher. Her book is called How to Be Loved, a memoir of life-saving friendship available from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. You can find her on the internet. Her website is evahagbergfisher.com. If you want to follow her on Twitter, her handle over there is at Eva Hagberg. How to Be Loved, a memoir of life-saving friendship by Eva Hagberg Fisher. Go get your copy right now. Like right now. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to support this podcast, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget about the Other People app, the Other People with Brad Listy app, the official app of this program. It is free, and it is available where you get your apps. Go get the app. So do I need to go on the record and and say what I think is going to happen in this Robert Mueller report? 
Like right now, we don't know. It's this big question mark. We're all kind of waiting, or at least most of us are waiting, or some of us are waiting. And by the time this episode goes live, we're going to know one way or the other. We're going to know that we know, or we're going to know that we don't know. (laughs) What do I think we're going to know? I think we're going to be told a lot of things we already know. And I think hopefully Mueller is going to talk about obstruction of justice. And he's going to kind of point in the direction of these other prosecutors' offices that are, you know, I think going to handle other indictments. Like this, this can't be the end. This has got to be like the end of the beginning or something.